Hello and welcome to this ENT Expert Opinion podcast. My name's Dr. Niall Jefferson and my guest today is Associate Professor Alan Cheng. Professor Cheng completed his ENT training in New Zealand and went on to do a fellowship in Chicago under Lauren Hollinger. He's currently the training supervisor at Westmead Children's Hospital in Sydney. He has an active clinical and academic interest in airway obstruction, sleep disorders and congenital laryngeal anomalies in children and has presented and published nationally and internationally. He has an active ongoing role in the training and mentoring of ENT registrars and it's my pleasure to talk to him today. How are you, Prof? I'm very well, thank you. All right. So today we're going to be talking about uh, laryngeal clefts. Now, largely, we'll limit the discussion to uh, type 1 and type 2, recognising that type 3 and type 4 are um, a far more complex uh, problem. But overall, what is a laryngeal cleft, Prof, and how common are they? Well, laryngeal clefts are a, a congenital uh, anomaly, um, usually restricted to the back part of the larynx, um, be- um, behind the vocal cords in that sense. It's the partition between the larynx and the esophagus or the gullet and uh, where food passages are separated from the airway passages. And if you have a cleft in that area, it then predisposes the individual to having symptoms of aspiration uh, and contamination of the um, airway leading to subsequent complications such as infections and pneumonias. Okay. You've touched on how these patients present. Um, Are there any other key features in the history that you look for that raise your suspicion that this child may have uh, a a laryngeal cleft? Well, these children um, tend to present later in life uh, they don't present straight off the first time unless it's a very gross cleft. So we're talking about then the minor clefts, uh, which are much more common than the more serious t- type 3, type 4 clefts uh, that we can allude to later on. But with the um, type 1 and type 2 clefts, they can present basically with a cough. And as you know, cough is very, very frequent in uh, most individuals. And we usually go through a whole series of uh, other treatment options for patients with uh, unspecified cough. They may also present with um, asthma-like symptoms like wheeze. Uh, They may have uh, a stridor, a husky cry. Uh, But classically, uh, they seem to have these symptoms after a feed, after a meal, uh, where they've consumed something and it aggravates the uh, laryngeal airway uh, and then leading on to the uh, above-mentioned symptoms. Um, do they have a uh, stridor or any other um, features outside of that? Yes, they can have the stridor. Um, in fact, um, a lot of them present with um, uh, quite severe croup-like stridor, and they're often misdiagnosed as croup. They respond very, very well with um, nebulized uh, medications such as adrenaline. Uh, they may even respond to um, asthma treatments. Uh, but then when you go to examine them to, to look for persistent signs, often you don't find that. And then that's where the, the index of suspicion is uh, raised as to possibly that there may be a cleft. Outside of the clinical presenting symptoms, are there, what other things in the history do you like to extract? 
Well, it's interesting. Um, in the last few years, I've noticed um, almost two very different groups of children. There's the one group of children which uh, seem to constantly graze on their food because they have a chronic throat irritation. These children actually end up putting on quite a lot of weight and they sit very high up on the weight percentiles and growth percentiles, so much so that they become somewhat uh, obese with a very high BMI score. Then there's the other group which are quite severe where they don't want to feed because every time they feed, they know it makes them uh, cough and they um, then tend to be underweight. Uh, they tend to be called failure to thrive patients and um, they the parents get very worried about the fact that their child is not putting on um, good weight. Um, you've mentioned uh, BMI as part of the assessment. When you're seeing them for the first time, are there any other things in your physical exam that you'll perform? Um, the usual things in, uh, when I assess them is, of course, you assess them from a distance, uh, see how they're breathing, uh, see if there's in any signs of any respiratory distress, um, looking for evidence of um, increased respiratory efforts, such as uh, suprostonal tug, intercostal recessions, like we all do for airway obstruction. Um, you also listen to your voice, because when they talk to you, you can hear a, a hinting of a mild huskiness. They may have uh, inspiratory stridal, which fluctuates. It doesn't, it's not constant stridal, but it fluctuates. It can be uh, mainly inspiratory, but there may be an expiratory component. What makes that happen is that the vocal cords of these children tend to be more adducted than normal because they're protecting on their throat. And therefore, when their vocal cords are close together, you get that stridal. But when the inflammation is not there, that stridal seems to disappear. So you've performed your, uh, your, your comprehensive history and physical examination. What makes you think this child needs further investigation, uh, in particular, uh, uh, laryngobronchoesophagoscopy? I think the most important thing, uh, is on the presenting history. Uh, the presenting history will tell you how much does this, uh, problem affect the child's, uh, general daily habit. Um, if they are constantly uh, unwell, frequent infections, uh, I think it's imperative that we investigate the cause for that and reduce these problems. Um, the problem with the obese children or the children who are well-fed, the issues there is that um, the parents are concerned by the fact that always coughing, they may have um, vomiting episodes, um, and this distresses the parents. And in that situation, again, I would uh, investigate to look for a cliff and make a decision if it's indeed required. At the time of uh, your laryngobronchoscopy, how do you go about assessing whether there is in fact a laryngeal cleft and what are the findings clinically that you're looking for? So with a laryngeal cleft, um, they do come in various uh, forms. Um, the most important thing uh, you must do is to examine it with your own eyes. Um, nowadays, with the use of fiber optic telescopes, um, uh, rod lens telescopes, camera systems, the contrast ratio created by that, um, that is not as 
well-defined as what can be seen with your own naked eye. So my emphasis is to use your own eyes when you look at it. The standard of care in my books would be a microlaryngoscopy. And, and this gives you um, direct visualization of the larynx. It allows you to have two hands free to examine the area more carefully. What you're looking for is um, unexplained swelling of the supraarytenoid tissues. Um, I look for swelling on the free edge of the vocal process of the vocal cords. I look for signs of tracheal contamination with the sign of cobblestoning of the whole trachea. Um, I also look for um, the depth of the interarytenoid area, uh, which often is masked by swelling in this area. Um, we have what we call laryngeal spreaders, and we do use them quite consistently to show that area more clearly. Um, we have used suction forceps or other forms of forceps to palpate the uh, interarytenoid area. And in fact, you can run the uh, suction up the back wall of the trachea and see when does it uh, fall through into the uh, pharynx or esophagus, and that will give you a better idea. Uh, often this cannot be uh, seen with a pure fiber optic uh, bronchoscope, and that's probably why there have been many cases that have been missed by the respiratory physicians because of their inability to use the microlaryngoscopy technique. So binocular vision being able to give you that depth perception to appropriately assess that depth. Correct. Um, it was a paper by uh, Richard Smith in 1994, and Richard, uh, the Professor Smith from Iowa, had uh, made that comment, uh, and he was trying to define the in the, the appropriate interarytenoid height for which we would call uh, uh, a proper anatomical uh, interarytenoid height to prevent um, spillage of uh, food contents into the vocal cords, particularly with uh, fluids. You've performed your uh, laryngobronchoscopy. Um, how do you grade laryngeal clefts? Uh, there's a lot of controversies into the grading of cliffs, but we, we tend to follow the um, Benjamin Inglis uh, classification, uh, which was set up probably uh, in the 80s uh, by Professor Benjamin with his um, uh, fellow at that time, Dr. Andy Inglis, who's now a professor in Seattle. Um, and they classify grade one as anything um, down any uh, cleft down to the level of the vocal cord as the first one. Grade two is anything below the vocal cords and involving the cricoid. Grade three is a cleft that goes beyond the cricoid but in the cervical trachea, and grade four is below uh, to involve the trachea, um, involving the esophageal uh, part of the trachea. So you've performed your uh, your examination under the anaesthetic. You've come to a diagnosis. Let's limit discussion initially to a type 1 laryngeal cleft. Um, what are the management options uh, in these cases? The management options, um, again, de uh, depend on the severity of the clinical history. 
uh, and what you see on uh, uh, examination. Uh, remember the examination is not just about what you see. There are certain tests and investigations that we may do as a result of it. Uh, things that you, you must um, take into consideration is uh, a swallow study, uh, looking at the chest x-ray findings, working out their respiratory function, uh, looking at their uh, nutrition, looking for any comorbidities um, which can occur with these conditions, um, looking for reflux uh, or allergic esophagitis. So you have to look at the whole picture and not make a decision just on what you see. But let's say we just came down to uh, what you see in the cleft itself. So take a type 1 cleft. As you know, um, type 1 clefts, some of them do very well with conservative measures without need for surgical intervention. Uh, type 1 clefts um, may respond very well with uh, anti-reflux measures and time. Uh, and a lot of these children, historically, do get in better with time. Um, some of them do not, and that will help you decide whether something needs to be done. We've uh, taken up um, a different algorithm um, towards managing these conditions, and that's the uh, form of an injection. So I tend to use a um, dissolvable gel foam uh, injection, which we're able to place in the interarytenoid area or at the cleft area to fill it up. This uh, physically obstructs that cleft that was causing the problem and potentially uh, gives the patient symptomatic relief. If this is done and uh, the parents and the child immediately improves in their symptoms, albeit temporarily, this at least gives um, the child and the parents and the carers uh, an idea of how good it could be if something else was done. If they did well, uh, we do offer them the possibility of a laryngeal cleft repair. You've mentioned some other investigations, uh, such as a modified barium swallow and a chest X-ray. Would you normally get those prior to an LBO, or is that something that you would do based on your findings at an LBO? The MBS, the modified barium swallow, is uh, another investigative tool that we use frequently uh, at our hospital. Uh, it is um, performed by the speech therapist uh, and with radiological guidance. And it's a very useful tool to look for um, abnormalities with the swallowing mechanism. Children with laryngeal clefts may not only have that, and some of them, is, uh, which I haven't mentioned, um, is associated with other neurological abnormalities, uh, such as OPITS-G, um, Pallister Hall, tracheoesophageal fistulas, um, and these issues also play a part in your overall decision-making. If you have a neurological abnormality, um, the modified barium swallow may highlight that and um, make you change your mind as to whether you should uh, operate or not operate, uh, whether they require uh, another form of therapy. Um, one of the treatment uh, standard options for laryngeal cleft uh, should there be significant neurological abnormality is to protect the larynx, uh, protect the uh, airway, uh, and protect the lungs. Uh, and that will come in the form of a tracheotomy. Uh, and that's what uh, has been the standard care, especially for the uh, more severe cliffs in the past. However, a modified barium swallow 
can tell you if um, there is a suspicion of a minor clef and there's signs of aspiration and you need to confirm it. The problem with a, a modified barium solar, it, it does involve radiation exposure and it may not show a cleft, uh, especially a minor cleft. And so it doesn't always mean that if you do not have one, uh, a positive report on MBS, that there is indeed no cleft. We've touched on uh, conservative management, and in most cases that would be along the lines of diet modification, maybe thickeners, possibly proton pump inhibitors. Would that be right? Children uh, with laryngeal clefts do very well with um, thickening of their um, diet, and uh, often they um, have a reflux formula, and they um, put thickeners into the diet so that the food goes down um, around the epiglottis into the postcricoid area, and then it then, with gravity alone, it will slip down. Uh, the problems come about when they're drinking water or any thin fluids, uh, where as the food goes around the epiglottis, as it sits in the lower pharynx, there's a time delay before the uh, fluid will go through the, into the esophagus. This time delay allows any excessive fluid to then spill through the cleft and into the airway, and that's why classically uh, they do uh, they, they have a history of coughing after drinking. And that's probably one of the commonest features of this condition. We've begun, in a way, the discussion of the surgical options, and you've uh, described uh, your approach with, in some cases, a gel foam injection almost as a diagnostic tool. Um, for those uh, children who require uh, a, a surgical repair, how do you do that? What are the options available? Um, I've mentioned injections. Uh, I, I think we need to emphasize that there are injections such as gel foam, but there are also injections uh, which uh, may be more prolonged, like RADIS uh, or hydroxyapatite. Um, problem with injection is that you can bring it up to a certain point. It's all dissolvable and it tends to uh, disappear with time. So I know some of my colleagues have gone to just injecting uh, something more permanent than gel foam, um, and that's one option I, I think I need to emphasize. Another option is the increase in the interarytenoid height by doing a surgical procedure. This uh, comes uh, in several ways, um, and again, it depends on the severity of the cleft. With the type 1 clefts alone, there's usually a lot of excess tissue in that postcricoid region, and you can um, bring them together quite easily by freshening up the uh, interarytenoid edges and then doing some sort of primary repair to bring them together. Uh, some of us have uh, taken to uh, using a laser to freshen up. Some of us just use it with um, plain scissors and um, forceps or with a touch of adrenaline to help with hemostasis. Um, the classical description was made by my mentor, Professor Hollinger, who did a double-breasted approach where he raised uh, a, f a flap from one side of the larynx and a flap from the other side and brought these two flaps together. And so you had uh, suture lines which were um, separate to one another and it led to a reduction in the frequency of breakdown following surgery. 
Uh, and that's the technique I've taken too, and, and I find it very useful. What are, uh, with the repair, the um, peri- and intraoperative considerations that you have in regards to the repair? For example, antibiotics, do you need anti-reflux measures and so on? Um, the most important thing about the repair is that the air should not be under tension. Um, the air should not be inf- uh, infected or inflamed. And that's probably why I'm not as uh, invariable of uh, using a laser uh, because of the associated inflammation, inflammation that can result from that leading to a delayed wound healing. Um, so surgical technique is very important. Um, the other aspects, uh, you want to minimize the um, reflux, uh, the acid reflux to the wound site and Invariably, most of us believe that anti-reflux measures such as proton pump inhibitors or H2 antagonists, along with possible um, substances such as mylanta and gaviscon, to uh, reduce the acidity of the gastric refluxate into the area. Children uh, invariably have a degree of reflux. In fact, I think everyone has reflux. And uh, you have to minimize its impact on the air. Antibiotics um, may not be necessary, um, but generally I do give them 48 hours of antibiotics just after surgical repair. Um, I have no restrictions in terms of what sort of dietary content uh, they have at this time period. Um, But generally we stay back to pureed food, um, until which time we felt that the area would have fully repaired before we start introducing uh, clear fluids. So uh, let's move on to the post-operative instructions. Um, how do you manage them once you've done your repair? Once we've done the repair, um, again, it depends on the age of the child. But for, let's say, the children uh, under five, uh, we do tend to put them in intensive care. Uh, we keep them asleep in intensive care for a period of 48 hours. Um, for the older children, uh, preoperative explanation of making sure that they don't cry and use their voice excessively in the time period is also very important. And um, for those children, uh, they should not have a problem because uh, they understand exactly what we're trying to achieve. Um, after that period, uh, once they're asleep, we then extubate them uh, in the intensive care unit or possibly in theatres, uh, and then we um, maintain the anti-reflux measures, the dietary um, measures that's necessary to make sure that the air is well healed before we, we uh, go back to normal diet. What is the, the long-term prognosis with these children? Um, the long-term prognosis of these children, are, assuming no comorbidities, are generally very favourable. Um, once the communication between the trachea and the esophagus has been fixed, uh, they should not have any other issues in terms of feeding. Again, the grade of um, a cleft is uh, something of concern. And so if we're talking about uh, grade 3, grade 4 clefts, they continue to have a severe degree of uh, tracheomalacia, and those issues uh, will need to be continually addressed. Well, I think that uh, that covers most of the uh, issues in relation to laryngeal cleft that I was hoping to discuss today. Um, this brings us to the final word. So the final word is an opportunity for you to 
either touch on something that we haven't discussed or highlight something that we have discussed. So I'll hand it over to you for the final word. Okay, thank you, Nah. Um, I think that um, over the last 10 years, we've developed a, a good way of correcting aspiration with the laryngeal cleft repair procedure. Uh, it has low morbidity, and it may become a very good workhorse for subsequent management of aspiration issues. Uh, and it's not just conf- um, confined to just laryngeal cleft surgery. Um, it is important that there, that we remove the controversies associated with standardizing cliffs. We may have to, in fact, um, improve on the way we grade cliff nowadays, given that the amount of uh, type 1 cliffs that we see. Uh, I want to emphasize that binocular vision using the microscope exam is still probably my favorite approach, and I would encourage that to be this gold standard of examining this error, and not to rely on a, a, a picture at a single point in time to make that decision. It is important to palpate carefully that interiority not height, and look for those changes to make us more suspicious of it and not um, just look at the size of the airway. Um, I hope um, you and your colleagues in time will be able to help us sort out some of these um, issues regard to how we examine the cliffs, uh, how we standardize it, how we should examine it carefully, and hopefully um, uh, make an opportunity to give these children uh, a better life. Well, thanks very much for uh, for that, Prof. Um, this has been another podcast in the ENT Expert Opinion series. You can find more podcasts at ENT Expert Opinion on iTunes or Stitcher. You can also find us at our website, entexpertopinion.com, or email us with uh, questions or suggestions at entexpertopinion at gmail.com. Thanks very much. Thank you.